turn to the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. You probably realize this, but in life there's all sorts of choices, decisions that you've got to make. Sometimes, I mean, it seems like you're just paralyzed by the number of decisions that you have to make. You've got choices about what you're going to eat for lunch, where you're going to go on vacation, what to say, what to do, what to wear, what to eat, even what church to attend. Now, some of our decisions and choices before us are pretty trivial, and they seem to make very little difference in life. You're going to have a fish sandwich, you're going to have a hamburger. Not a big deal. On the other hand, there are choices and decisions of life that are of immense importance. And there is one that is absolutely critical. In fact, it will be defining to us, and that is, what will you and I do with Jesus and his word? And when we come to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus ends this most famous sermon by driving hope home the absolute importance of us fixing our hope and our attention on Christ and Christ alone and desiring to follow him and his word. You know, our response to Jesus and his word will be revealed in this life and in the eternity that we face. And so when we come to this conclusion, we're going to find out that Jesus is going to bring us to some foundational issues. And the first and the foremost one is we need to understand the decision that is before us. So when you come to the text, Matthew chapter 7, look at verse 13. Jesus lays the decision before not only the people gathered on that day when he was giving this particular message, but before people today, even now. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. And so Jesus takes us to like perhaps on a path where we see two different gates, one, a very small, narrow one, one, an extremely broad, wide open one. And he says, make sure you go through the narrow gate. And then he talks about really the big, the broad gate, how wide it is. You see, it is so wide that it accommodates the masses. It accommodates all the baggage they might have, their sin, their preferences, their desires, whatever you want. If you would like to have God on your own terms, you want to make God in your own image, by all means, the wide, broad gate is for you. If you want to take on your particular mindset that, you know, it really doesn't matter if you believe in God, or that all roads lead to the same spiritual destination, there is a broad gate in which you can go through. There's a gate that says, hey, come on in. Don't worry about your little pet sins. Don't let that trouble you. You got some issues there? The broad gate is wide open for you. You can experience God's kingdom. You can experience heaven. You can have assurance that everything is going to be all right. Just simply go through the broad gate. If you want to have a religion of works where you've got a Work hard to make God happy. Why, by all means, go through the broad gate. Because we take religious and the irreligious. We take the atheist and the agnostic. And on the also, we'll take the people that will be highly religious. They'll perhaps even dress in certain garments just to be identified as those especially set apart to God. And really, when you go through the broad gate, ultimately it's follow your own heart. And live out your own desires. Be true to yourself because... By the way, this is, this is the broad gate. 
And there really is safety and numbers. And what Jesus is saying is that there are the masses that are going through the broad gate and they see everybody around them going through the exact same gate. And it's it's like, hey, be accommodating. There's no absolutes. You can take whatever you want. It is it is spacious. It's wide open. And so what do you see is like when you turn on the TV or you uh, perhaps go to schools or even certain churches, they teach you can believe whatever you want to believe. If you don't want to deal with issues like sin and repentance, it's okay. There is a broad gate that is for you. The result, though, Jesus says, is this. And there are many who enter through it, and it's the broad way that leads to destruction. It leads to ultimately eternal death, eternal separation from God. It will bring about a fatality in your life and your soul if you go through the broad gate. And friends, what the world is throwing at us today, whether it be in the media, what you see on the Internet, what is being proclaimed in different pulpits and places that call themselves gatherings, even some churches, different synagogues, different temples, some living enrichment type centers, is that there is a path and there is a gate that is wide enough to accommodate all of us. Let's just simply appreciate one another. Let's tolerate everything. And let's just simply go through this broad gate. And Jesus says it is the way of destruction. But he said, make sure you enter through the narrow gate. There is a another gate that is extremely narrow. In fact, it is only allows you to go through with Christ and Christ alone. You have to leave your sin. You have to leave your own preferences and desires. It is a narrow way. The world will reject it. Most of the world is going to go through the wide gate. But Jesus says, enter through the small and the the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The startling reality is this. Most people in the world will go through what Jesus says is the broad, wide open large gate, and they will perish. That's why Jesus drives home the absolute importance that you and I go through the narrow gate. In fact, he's going to emphasize at the end of this message that I'm it. You've got to build your life on me and my words, and nothing else will do. It calls for a knowledge of the truth. It calls for repentance and a turning away from your sin. It calls submission to Christ as Lord of life. It calls us to a willingness to obey him, to follow his word. It is the narrow way. But the result is, if you go the narrow gate, you go with Christ and Christ alone, you will experience the abundance of life. Not only life that lasts into eternity, but a quality life, a life that comes from God. And that's why he says, Make sure you go through the narrow gate. And one of the greatest dangers we face is the danger of self-deception. To assume that we are fine with God because there's different events that have taken place in our life or affiliated with a church or we live in a quote-unquote Christian country or I have a Bible. And what happens is people make these drastic assumptions. They're going through whatever the narrow gate is that Jesus is referring to when in actuality they're going through the broad gate. To not choose the narrow gate is to continue to go through the broad gate. 
Frank Sinatra had a very popular song. I was Presley saying it, it my way. Right. Remember that? And I did it my way. Right. Well, guess what? That very well may be the theme song of hell. You went your way. You had God on your terms. You wanted God to accommodate your philosophy. You made some radical assumptions that I'll be fine with God because I have certain events or certain aspects of my life that look religious. Perhaps I even showed up at church a lot. I know songs. I have a Bible. I did some nice things for charity. I worked at a homeless mission. I gave a Thanksgiving dinner to someone. When in reality, if you are not truly united with Christ and Christ alone, laying your sin at the cross and moving forward and trusting him, you're not going through the narrow gate. Do you know, by the way, what the early Christians were called? They weren't initially called Christians. They were called people belonging to the way. The way. Like if you look in the book of Acts, that's how they're identified. They are those of the way. They went the narrow gate. They were the way of the master. And Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is but one way to have life, and that is to have it identified with Jesus Christ. And apart from that, if you have any other way that you're going, you're likely on the broad road. That means that you can come with none of your sin, none of your credentials, none of your good works. Let me ask you, did your faith and your trusting of Jesus Christ cost you anything? Now, don't mistake me. Salvation is in Christ alone and is a gift by his grace. God freely gives salvation, grace, hope, life, forgiveness to people. But it's not that he, you just add Jesus to your life. Like in Hinduism, like, sure, I'll take it. Jesus, that sounds good. I'd like a little fire insurance policy. It's not like you add Jesus to your life and you continue on in your same sinful, selfish, prideful, arrogant, lust-filled patterns. When we come to Christ, we realize that that's why he had to go to the cross. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. We actually repent. We change direction. We trust in Christ alone. We say, God, I am yours. Save me. And that is the way that we go through the narrow gate. How many of you loved math? I'm just curious. Come on, there's their engineers. Oh, look at that. We got some folks that love math. And what about math? You know, like math is one of those uh, disciplines where there's only one right answer and there are billions of wrong ones. And some of you have figured this out the hard way, right? Like, oh, and we like new math, right? Well, I was close. And we really want professors to give us what? Partial credit. Well, I did some of this stuff right here. And there is only one right answer to the math problem. And all of the others are wrong. And when it comes to life, eternity, salvation, there is but one way. There's a lot of people that are going to they're going along the mindset that God is going to work with approximate answers. They have they have religious activity. They perhaps were involved in church. They know some of the right answers. They actually know some Bible verses. But they've never come to a point where they truly repented and confessed their sin and trusted in Christ and Christ alone. They're still on the broad way 
And yet they're going with the false assumption that I am fine with God. Maybe even you're here today and you've lived a life of self-delusion. You've been affiliated with the church. Maybe someone brought you to a church from the day that you were born, but you've never truly trusted Christ alone. Jesus says, make sure you enter through the narrow way. Let me translate what Jesus is saying when he says in, in verse 13, there are many who are entered through it. He's, what he's saying is there are going to be far more people in hell than there are in heaven. God's people have always been rather a small remnant. And so Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. Foundational to our understanding and to our life is that we need to know the decision that is before us. Broadway or Jesus way. Let me give you another one. We need to know about the dangers that we will face. And so look what Jesus says right after he talks about the two different ways approaching life. His way, the narrow way, which, by the way, Jesus is accused of being narrow minded. That doesn't work in our society. Was Jesus narrow minded? Absolutely. When it came to salvation, there's but one way. But he not only tells us to go his way, the narrow way, he also gives it, warns us of the dangers that are around us. Verse 15, he says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, beware of the false prophets, false teachers, teachers that misrepresent God. They teach Truth that they teach uh, doctrines that are deceptive and actually not true. They are masters at twisting truth of Scripture and adding their own twist to it. Or perhaps they actually deny cardinal doctrines of the faith. They can deny the deity of Christ. See that with Jehovah Witnesses. Or they can say, hey, uh, Jesus is God. You're a God. Mormons. They can they can have all these different doctrines that they present as truth. And when he says, watch out for these false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, he's talking about literally that they wear the garb of a shepherd. He's not saying that they're sheep so much as that shepherds would wear these woolen garments. And when he, Jesus says, watch out and they come to you, they're like wolves. He's using this wolf metaphor to point out that they are vicious. They're not just merely going to try to slide in to a church. They're going to want to lead it. They're going to want to be involved. They want positions of leadership and influence, and they have a desire, and it's not God's. It's their own agenda. This is what Jesus said. Paul, when you read the New Testament, you come to like Acts chapter 20, he explicitly emphasizes that this is how the attack will come. Yeah, you're going to face hardship from outside the church, but the biggest difficulties are those that are going to rise inside. You're going to have people, men, perhaps women, who have an agenda And it's not God's. He says, watch out for them. He says, verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. You'll be able to identify from the fruit of their life, their teaching, their morality, their behavior in life. He says, grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Well, that's right. So he says, verse 17, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. You see, a tree produces its own likeness. And whatever plant you are, you're going to produce that kind of fruit. Thorns and thistles produce thorns and thistles. Apple trees, pear trees, orange trees, they produce fruit from their kind. He says, you will be able to tell. 
He says, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so then you will know them by their fruits. And so when it comes to these false teachers, these false prophets, you want to look at, first of all, what are they teaching? What do they teach about the cardinal truths of God's word? Not only is this a book from God inspired by him, what do they teach about Jesus Christ, about God, about sin, about hell, about heaven, about true authentic relationship with him? What about the work of Jesus Christ? What does it accomplish? There's you got to be absolutely clear on those things. False prophets, oftentimes they're not going to want to deal with those issues. They've got their own agenda, but they also come in a lot of different stripes and shapes. You also have false teachers that actually want to be extremely accommodating to the masses. They are far more interested in numbers and people gathering around them than they are so much about what the people believe. And so some of these false teachers, they're going to absolutely avoid anything that will disturb people that are going on the broad way. They're not going to want to talk about things like sin, hell. They're not going to want to talk about repentance Faith in Christ alone, because that's too narrow. All of a sudden, people are like, I don't like that. That doesn't make me happy. That's not what I want. And so what happens is people bail on that. Well, false teachers, sometimes they realize, hey, if I make a statement here about you got to repent and trust in Christ, that might really thin out the crowd. I'm not going to do that. Because after all, they think it's all about them and their accommodations. And so what they're going to do is they're going to avoid teaching truths that will disturb people who are on the broad way because they themselves are deceived and they're not believing in the truth. But also when you look at false teachers, not only look at what they teach, but you also want to look at how their teaching affects other people. What is the result of you sitting under their teaching look like? You're getting their CDs or watching them on TV or being involved in their church or their little group or club or whatever they got going. What is the result? What do these people look like and what do they believe? And also you want to look at their moral character. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes false teachers, the ones that Jesus is addressing here, they have breakdowns in their morality. And it eventually comes to show. Now, this whole false prophets, you know, that may be a new term for you. This was not something new for Jesus listeners. Those initial disciples and this crowd that was gathering around him, they knew very well about false prophets because they were prevalent in the Jewish history. In fact, they're pretty prevalent in the Old Testament. False prophets did this. They told people what the king wanted to hear and what the people wanted to hear, and they did it as God's representatives. They said things they knew to be false, but they knew that would keep the king happy And they would keep the people happy. That's what they wanted to hear. And so that's what they told them. That's what they wanted to hear. That's what they gave. Jesus says they're false prophets and they have a certain end. They're going to be cut off. They're cast, cut down. They're thrown into the fire. They speak of eternal perishing. That means that they represented God, so to speak, in their own minds and to the people when, in fact, they will perish. And anybody that believes and holds on to what they say is true or this is the way of God is going to follow in the same footsteps because they are reproducing their likeness. I hope you're really sobered at this point. And I want to make this statement. You've heard this before. Just because I say it 
you need to examine the scriptures and make sure that it is true. I would never intentionally deceive you, neither would any of our pastors. We spend a great deal of time studying, searching out the doctrine, making sure it is true, and presenting to you week after week, Wednesdays, throughout the week, especially Sundays, we want you to know what is true, but the onus of responsibility is upon you to examine these things to see if they're true. It's not really all that important what I have to say. What's important is what God has said, right? What the, the key question for us is, what does the scripture say? What does God's word have to say? And so Jesus says, listen, a tree, the type of tree determines the type of fruit. And these false teachers... They've got a false doctrine that they're, they're supporting and they're teaching. And if that doesn't alarm you, verses 21 through 23 most certainly will. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my father. That's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus calls God his father, speaking of the intimacy they have, not whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. Whoa, wait a second here. I just thought all you had to do is just say Jesus is Lord, right? Little mantra, you say that? See it? And, and, and you got an automatic ticket to heaven. What Jesus is saying here is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who has made a profession of just, I believe in Jesus, is truly going to have a relationship with Christ, because why? You have to have an authentic, genuine, saving relationship with Christ. You've got to go through the narrow door. And Jesus says, I'm the judge, and I know who really is in relationship with me. And so he says, not everyone, verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? You have to do the will of the Father. The Father in heaven, you have to do His will. You have to believe in His Messiah. You have to go His way. You come to God on His terms, not yours. And then he says, look at verse 22. Many will say to me, remember when I told you at the beginning of this message, no one but Jesus could give this message? Because Jesus sets himself up as the authority because he's God himself. He says, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And what they're saying is, listen, we did some great things and we did it in your name. They are focused on the miraculous Focused on, what, like what he's talking about here, we did miracles, we cast out demons, we prophesied, likely speaking of proclaimed truth. Perhaps it was foretelling, but most, most likely it was foretelling, saying things that, hey, this is what God said, we were teaching in your name. We actually did miracles. We actually, like he says here, we actually cast out demons. And what does he, Jesus say, verse 23? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness you who are actually in violation of the very word of god you purport yourself to be a teacher of now this is this is extremely alarming 
Because not only does Jesus say you've got to go through the narrow way, but Jesus says there's going to be a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord, and yet they really don't belong to him. And this is kind of the trap. What happens is they get so fixed on their works. They're fixed on some miracles that they supposedly were involved in, or at least they're saying they're involved in, casting out demons or doing some sort of teaching. They were so focused on their works or on some sort of experience that they actually miss Christ himself. And Jesus absolutely knows those who are his. And he says, I never knew you. That is the issue. Jesus is far more concerned with our walk than our talk. And so, friends, it is going to be extremely sobering on one respect to see who is in heaven and who is not. It is a narrow gate, Jesus says. Make sure you go through it. And just because you call him Lord, if you've never truly turned from your sin and trusted Christ, you were living in a state of delusion. Wake up and trust Christ as Lord. And so these people, they're believing in these false works, whether they're authentic miracles or not. I will tell you this. When the Antichrist comes, the man of lawlessness that talks about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, do you know what he will use? He will use false miracles to dissuade and persuade the masses. Jesus says, really what is critically important is that you know me and I know you. You profess to know me, but you do not possess me. And that is what is critical here. It's not your words. It's not your works. It is your relationship with Christ and Christ alone that saves you. And if you've got any other part of the plan, your gospel is different than that. You're on the wrong path path it is jesus christ and him alone it's kind of like um eating at a really expensive restaurant you go and have this huge meal at the end it's time to pay for that and so you whip out your visa and uh, you hand it off to the, the waiter or the waitress like oh i'm sorry oh we do we don't accept visa here what I've been doing visa and traveling my own way. This has always worked. What do you mean? Well, then how about discover? Because I'm into all discovering things. Here. I'm sorry. We take but one. It is the master's card. You have to have his righteousness accrued to your account. And anything but Christ and his righteousness will not work. Jesus doesn't actually say that they did these miraculous things or they actually cast out demons. He doesn't say, yeah, you did all those things. He just says, listen, I'm not even agreeing with that. He just declares to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Absolutely critical for me, you, our children, is that they know Christ and Christ alone. So foundational to our life and our, is our understanding of the decisions, the decision that we will face that's before us, the dangers that are around us, but also the difference that Jesus makes in us. Now, Jesus being a Jewish contractor, he actually then gives a 
contracting seminar, a Jewish carpenter. He gives this contracting seminar about building houses. And there are two different types of builders. And so he says, verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everybody would like to be a wise man. So Jesus says, there's two builders. This first one, he is a wise builder. And he builds his house upon the rock. And in verse 25, he says, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And so Jesus then points out, like, listen, the person who is wise is the one who does what? He hears my words. You see this in verse 24 because it's absolutely critical. You hear his words. It has the idea not only you listen to him, but you actually process. There is understanding these words of mine and you act on them. You literally do what he says. It's not just that you hear the words, but you actually do what he says. This is the one who has built his house on the rock. And so what he's saying is that your foundation is going to determine your future. And if you want a life that lasts, you don't experience eternity in the goodness and the grace of God. You have got to dig down deep and put your life on the rock. And, you know, when you look at when they're building a building, you always know how tall that building's going to go by looking how deep they dig. Right. If it's not going to be a building of much substance, they don't really dig very deep. But if you're going to put up a skyscraper, you put this huge hole in the ground. And they have all this concrete and these huge piers. Why? Because they intend for that structure to stand. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. The wise man will not settle with just, well, the ground's pretty hard here. And that around the Sea of Galilee, they would have some ground that was pretty hard when it was dry and dusty, i.e. Texas in the summer. But when the rains came and those, those dry little riverbeds called wadis filled up with water, man, all that just turned into a lot of loose soil. And anything that you put there got destroyed. Jesus says the one who is wise is not going to build on the superficial. He is going to apply himself or she will apply himself and they will dig down deep and they will build their life on me, the rock. And it will take effort. It will take time. And so that's what we do. First and foremost, in the area of salvation, we trust in Christ and Christ alone. But in every aspect of our life, our decisions, how we treat our family, others, how we deal with conflict, our direction in life, our desire to, to, to honor God in all things, it is all based upon him and his word. Now, there is a, there's something that you need to know. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said, Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. If you want life, it's more than just keeping some food in your stomach. You actually have to have your head and your eyes in this book. Because that is how your, the fabric of your life and your DNA is developed when God's word and his life becomes a part of it. So what happens here, though, there is another guy, though. And he said, verse 26, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, he will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, the foolish man, remember even from last week. The, the word here is moros. It's where we would get our word moron from. And the idea is of the foolish guy, it's not that he lacks information. It's that he lacks application with the information that he has. He actually knows 
perhaps quite a bit. But he's never truly come to a point where he actually follows or does or acts on what he knows. He is simple. He is foolish. The book of Proverbs is, addresses this foolish man in contrast to the wise man. The foolish guy perhaps knows a lot, heard a lot, but he's really never actually applied what he's heard. Well, this man, he also builds a house. And he builds his house where? He built his house on the sand. Because, first of all, it was an attractive place to be. Don't you want a house along the beach? Cool, right there. Here's a bunch of land right there. It, w- it was nice and it was easy and his house went up quick. And yet, both people face the storms of life. Verse 21, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Do you know what happened? Once the rains hit and the storms of life hit that man's house, because he didn't build upon the rock, it just kind of got dissipated. It, just, it was just destroyed. And so Jesus is presenting this to us. Why? Because he's showing we absolutely must do He says that what he says in verse 24. Believe in him. See what he says? You hear my words and you act on them. He is God and he is the authority in life. And if you want life, there will be no life apart from him and his word. Now, when Luke actually speaks of this and covers this uh, story that Jesus talks about of the two men who are building, he said that the, the man who was, who was wise, he dug down deep. He had to apply himself. You know, it costs you something to build your life on the rock. Do you know that? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. You've got to apply yourself. You have to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. You, not anybody, everybody just wakes up in the morning. Like, I just want to dive into the Bible. Or I think I'll take some time to pray or I'll pray with my kids. Those are patterns of discipline that you develop in life. But when you do so, what's happening is you're developing patterns that will build a life that will endure the storms that you face. And you and I are guaranteed to face storms. There is no exemption. What? I wish it was true that we place your faith in Christ and then you're spared of all grief or any problem. But the reality is the non-believer and the believer both face the storms of life. Physical problems, health issues, cancer, wayward children, problems in society, wars, difficulties, relational breakdown, financial problems, hardships at work. You name it. They are out there. We face the storms. The question is. Are you facing the storm with Christ and his word or are you going it alone on the sand? And you know what? The storms of life reveal where your life is built. Why would he build his life there? I mean, why would this foolish guy build his life on the sand? Let me just tell you, he probably had other priorities like his happiness, house, career, family, leisure, retirement. Perhaps. He was unwilling to apply himself. I mean, he couldn't be bothered to dig down on the rock. Oh, I don't want to fool with that sort of stuff. That's nonsense. That's a crutch for the weak-minded or whatever. And he throws a little label on it. He rationalizes it. Why he shouldn't do that. And then he might perhaps just never actually think of eternity. I mean, how many people go through life so short-sighted? Do you know the mortality rate right now is 100%? Do you know that? Every single person perishes and dies and passes from this life. But very few are living in light of eternity. And the eternity is like this huge line. 
we're a dot on the line. But most people are living for the dot, not the line. We're all focused on this little black spot right here. And really, the most important thing is eternity. Let me, you probably never hear this at a church, but I want to tell you how you can destroy your life. That's all right. Ready? I want to take some notes. If you are interested in destroying your life, I want you to know how to do it. First of all, simply do not believe in Jesus Christ and his word. Everything that we have just covered, you want to do like they say in Texas, chunk it. But don't want that. You want to destroy your life, please do not believe in Jesus Christ and his word. You, you want to treat it as nice but not necessary. Never look to him for life. Never be dependent upon him for strength. Don't thank him. Cut him out. Second, do not apply his word to your life. If you want to destroy your life, do not apply his word to your life. Simply do not do what Jesus says, hearing his words and acting on them. Verse 24. Third, do not be consistent. If you want your house to crumble, the last thing you want to do is do things like house repairs. Okay? You see your house sagging there and things coming apart there and you got a water problem. The last thing you want to do is address those issues when you see them in your personal life. Let me give you a, another one. Um, do not be concerned with spiritual growth. Please, if you want to destroy your life, involve yourself with far more interesting matters. Other things. Don't the spiritual life. Ah, messy. Stay away from it. Just focus on what you want. Focus on the dot. And let me do just the fifth little aspect if you want to destroy your life. Don't worry. Don't worry. Because it'll surely collapse. You've got God's word on it. If that's the path you're on. And and friends, you know I love you. I would not want any of you to perish and to face the calamities of going through life apart from Christ. But you are the one you must believe and put your trust and faith in him. You know, it's interesting when you see houses that have cracks and you got cracks in your walls. You're like, well, it's just the woodway soil. Friend, you got a foundation problem. When you see despair and hopelessness and anger issues out of control and sin everywhere and a lack of desire for God, you've got foundation issues they need to be addressed. Please don't like, well, that's just life in America. No, these are indicators you need Christ and Christ alone. So what kind of house are you building? The storms of life will reveal that. Experiencing joy and, and learning how to walk by faith and, the, and experiencing just the absolute awesomeness of just being forgiven. Being able to confess our sins and to know that Christ has redeemed us and saved us. Walking in light of the gospel reality. Or is your marriage a cold war zone? You can't get along with anybody. You're, you're mean-spirited. You're difficult to be around with. You're arrogant. Your pride, your lust is just running out of control. What will it be? You know, when it comes to storms, we're all going to face them. Now, you can work on your foundation like before the storm and... And after the storm, of course, you can learn and work on your foundation. But did you notice that when the tornado sirens went off this week, no one got out and started, I better get my foundation in order here on my house. No, because the storms were hitting. Whatever you got set up at that point, you're pretty much going to live with. It's always, always interesting. You know, they'd say, like, hey, if you're in a mobile home and you're in the path of the tornado, that ain't going to work. Go someplace else. They tell you that in advance. What kind of foundation are you building? And are you building on Christ? 
and him alone. Well, the people heard this, verse 28, when the Jesus finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority. He was teaching them as God, God in the flesh as he was, and not as their scribes. So what will you do with Jesus and his words? It is the most important question you will ever answer. Henry Blackaby, when he was a young pastor, the first funeral he was ever involved in that he had to do was a funeral for a beautiful three-year-old girl. Uh, he said it was tragic. First, first child in this family, first granddaughter in the extended family. Beautiful child. He said, I remember going over to their home once, and uh, this, this girl, every time her parents would tell her to do something, she would giggle and do the opposite. And they, the parents and the grandparents, they always rationalize it. <laughs> it's kind of cute. They tell her to sit. She'd stand up. They tell her to please come here. And she'd run away. And then one particular afternoon, the gate at their house by the front by the front yard was open. And she was giggling and running. They saw that the gate was open. She's running for the gate. They saw this car speeding down the road, and they yelled and yelled at her name. Please, please stop. She turns, she giggles at them, as per usual, and then she ran right out into the street. Emergency efforts could not save her, and this little girl died. Henry Blackaby writes, I realized how important it is to teach my people to listen and to obey God's voice, for it is life. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, he is the wise man. What will you do with Jesus and his words?